I'm Brian. And we're here to talk to you about Twin Peaks. And we know what you're probably thinking. What else is there to say about a show that premiered 30 years ago? Hasn't everything been covered already? And to that we say, maybe, but look, starting a podcast is free and we wanted to do it. And during a recent rewatch, we found we never ran out of things to say about Twin Peaks. So now you people are going to hear about it. We'll be covering each episode in depth from the pilot to the end of Twin Peaks to return, along with an episode on the still underappreciated masterpiece, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me. We'll also devote episodes to the official Twin Peaks books, like The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. And that's not all. We're especially excited to do deep dives on some of the themes of the series. You can look forward to discussions on Twin Peaks and disability, Twin Peaks and economics, Twin Peaks and gender, the uses of liminal spaces on Twin Peaks, and the ways that Twin Peaks explores race and nationality, or more often doesn't. We'll spend individual episodes talking about our favorite characters like Audrey or Big Ed Hurley or the Log Lady. Maybe not Dick Tremaine, but who knows? We'll also be getting into some of the critical texts that have been written about Twin Peaks, some of which we've already read and some of which we're excited to get into. And if we ever run out of material, there's the rest of David Lynch's films and the films that directly inspire Twin Peaks, like Sunset Boulevard or Otto Preminger's Laura. Should one of us explain the title though? Explain the title. I'll explain the title. Early in Twin Peaks, The Return, Deputy Hawk is looking through old materials related to the Laura Palmer case. He's hoping that one odd or missing element will spark an inspiration as to the mysteries surrounding Dale Cooper's current identity and location. He sees a pack of chocolate bunnies, one that appeared briefly in the pilot episode. Only one bunny is missing this time. Lucy is convinced that this missing bunny is the crucial key to everything. But Hawk has to shut her down. It's not about the bunny. But then he wonders, is it about the bunny? No, Hawk insists, it's not about the bunny. Now, there are a number of ways longtime Twin Peaks fans could take this scene. And when we get to that episode of The Return, we'll talk about them. But my immediate takeaway, and Brian's, was that this was a slight joke at the expense of obsessive fans who saw clues to the mystery in every irrelevant detail. They wanted the show to be a puzzle with a definitive solution. They wanted every weird detail to be a part of that solution. The puzzle box approach to TV writing and watching is everywhere now, and Twin Peaks was one of the pioneers in training audiences to look at TV this way. But David Lynch is, more than anything, an intuitive and imaginative artist. His approach to making art necessitates making connections and introducing symbols which are resonant with meaning, but don't necessarily add up to a decipherable code. The important thing about Twin Peaks isn't what it all means objectively, if such a thing can even be determined about any piece of art, but how it makes you feel, both in the moment and later as images and ideas sit with you. An alternate title for us could have been, Laura is the one, because that's what we're trying to say here. It's not about the bunny, it's about Laura, and it always has been. Twin Peaks isn't about the lore of the Black Lodge, or the soap opera antics of Catherine Martell, or the wackiness of Nadine thinking she's a teenager after she gets hit on the head, or whatever happened to trap Josie inside that dresser doorknob, though we love all that stuff, and we're going to talk about it. Twin Peaks, though, is about Laura, what was done to her, and what those crimes reveal about her, her family, and the community they're a part of. Further, it's about what those crimes tell us about the world we're living in, and how Lynch and Frost see that world. 
So with all that said, one more note. We want to talk about the story as a whole. And while we're not going out of our way to spoil anyone, and we'll try to remember to alert you if we do, there may be references to future events in our discussions, as a lot of our thoughts during our rewatch are necessarily shaped by what we know is coming. So if being spoiled at all bothers you, you know what? The show is 30 years old and we're all adults. So let's get to the pilot. All right. So the first thing I think we should talk about is the credit sequence. Sure. It's one of the all-time great credit sequences of any TV show. Or any I don't movie. know about that. It's no Thundercats. <laughs> um, you know, and this is one of the few TV shows where I always watch the credits mm -hmm. and never skip them. Yeah, I think, and it's not like you learn all of that much information from the credits, but it is right. a really good mood setter, I think. Um, just the music and the visuals and the way everything works together, it just kind of gets you into the headspace that you need to be in. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the aspects of that is the music um, is kind of switching from major to minor. So it's got a tone of bittersweet, mm -hmm. longing, maybe there's these dissonant notes in the chords. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's maybe an undercurrent of menace or something dark. <sighs> yeah, although it's, I don't know, it's weird. It sounds so different to me that particular theme depending on how it's used. That's true. Um, and where it's used. I mean, like, because by the time you get to the return, it's the same theme song, but a very different <clears throat> um, intro sequence in terms of visuals. And so yes. it's, that mood is a little bit darker to me than in the original series. But then they That's also use, the, use it in the return, uh, spoiler warning, um, in a later episode where it's um, really triumphant. And that's really just because of what's happening. It's like really digging into your nostalgia. That's right. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I wanted to mention that the, I think a lot of the power of it is just the, the, the tone of the synth that's used. Hmm. And I actually went and kind of tried to look at what's happening musically with this intro. Yeah. And I always, thought it was more complex than it is. It's very simple. Um, and I think a lot of it is just the choice of the tone and how it's kind of wobbly. And it's, it's almost like a blurry photograph. It's very dreamlike. Hmm. Um, and obviously setting up the dreamlike uh, logic of the show um, with that undercurrent of darkness that, as you noted, you can hear more or less depending on the context. So, uh, but uh, I think more importantly, really, uh, is the, the visual aspects of the credits. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of what we see, you know, like you said, we don't really see, um, uh, we don't get a lot of information. Right, you know, no headshots of characters or right. anything like that. Um, right, it's almost like uh, an ad cut for, you know, the local tourist board or something. Yeah, but... I feel like if it were that, it would be less focused on the mill. It's really all about the mill. Yes. It's, you know, wood being sawed, wood being piled up. 
um, it's very, very industrial. Yes. Um, which is so interesting to me, especially when you start thinking about like, okay, what function does the mill serve in this town and in the plot of the show? Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, this is a lumber town. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we're going to see that the lumber mill is central to the plot. So it's important in a very nuts and bolts way in the show. But yeah, it's uh, the lumber mill is the economic cause of the town. Right. The town sprung up around the lumber industry. Um, and uh, it has been the lifeblood of the town. Um, just uh, as the, the economic basis of everything that happens there. But by the time, you know, we get to the action of the show, it's a little bit of a vestige. Yeah, and I think a kind of undercurrent in the story of Twin Peaks is this community changing over from an industrial economy into a more service and tourism-based economy. So you see um, the Packards and the Martells um, becoming less important while somebody like Jerry Horn, um, well, Ben Horn really, and his brother Jerry, they become more important um, because they control things like hotels and stores and things that cater people's leisure activities. They are they are service economy rich. They don't make anything like the mill does. Yes. And they're the ones who are kind of taking over and Ben Horn sort of schemes to take over the mill and to kind of like crush the women that are um, controlling it and to manipulate them. That's a big part of the plot of the first two seasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's also, I think there's a broader thematic relevance here, <clears throat> which is, um, you know, the credits show, uh, they kind of contrast the, the natural beauty around Twin Peaks mm -hmm. with, like you said, the shots of the, the lumber mill. Uh, importantly, at this point, it's automated to a certain extent. We see machinery, it's mundane. I think the machinery is is also beautiful in the way that it's shot, mm -hmm. um, but there's a definite contrast. Um, and so we see that the town exists through the taming of nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and the- Like the commodification of nature. Like yeah. it's literally taking what makes this area so beautiful, which is its forest, Yes. And turning that into a product. Absolutely. Cutting down the trees, carving them into timber in this action that's violent, but also very mundane. And in a way that's so funny because when Twin Peaks turns into more of like a service and tourism based economy, that's doing the same thing. It's, it's yes. turning this scenery into something that can be bought and sold, but in a less obvious way than in just, you know, cutting the trees down and turning them into lumber. Right, but you know, as as we find on the second season, even then, it's uh, that industry is also destructive to the natural environment. Exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, and, and so you know, this kind of uh, nature versus uh, society theme, uh, I think it, it mirrors the supernatural elements that we get later on, where there's a sense that the town is built on top of 
these primeval spiritual forces mm-hmm. associated with the forest. Mm-hmm. That some of those forces are benevolent, and and that that that's the force that makes the coffee and pie so damn good. Yeah. But then also we have these dark forces, this unchained id, uh, personified in Bob. Right. And I guess I want to sort of bring that back to the human story, which ends up being told here, is that sort of beyond the murder of Laura Palmer and the attack on um, Ron Polanski that start off the pilot plot, what we're seeing is kind of the destruction of a community as it learns more about itself. Twin Peaks is a really tight-knit community, and it thinks of itself as a certain way. And the story of the show is them finding out that actually there's a lot of dark and seedy stuff going on yes. underneath. Yes. Um, that's a part of the community too. That, you know, there's great coffee and pie and there's great people, but there are also really terrible people. And so this story of this community, which only exists because of this industry, we're seeing that industry sort of become less and less important and less and less central we're also seeing this community sort of splinter up very slowly. Right. Yeah. And, um, right. You have the, the, the surface built around the industry and then also the, the fact that the basis of that industry and therefore the basis of the town is always in flux, Mm -hmm. always changing under the feet of the people that live there and opening up these darker forces. And one thing I want to note, and we'll, before we move on from the credits, is the sense of a surface and something underneath. Mm-hmm. And I think that's absolutely something you see all throughout Twin Peaks. But also, you know, I think we we both read the famous essay by David Foster Wallace, yeah. where I think he rightly tries to complicate this idea um, and to say that it's not so simple that, oh, it, it's, the small town is an artifice and the good things are an artifice no. and there's the CD underbelly. Right. But these forces, um, they're not just underneath. They're like imminent within the structures and institutions and psychology of the town. Yeah. I think it's a real, it's a common misreading of a lot of David Lynch's work. If you, you know, going back to like Blue Velvet, but also of Twin Peaks, um, and stuff like Mulholland Drive too, that he is interested in like exposing all of the dark stuff that is underneath the happy stuff that we like and showing how the happy stuff that we like is really corrupt and, and terrible. Um, but I think that's a real misunderstanding. I think he genuinely believes that small tight knit communities are good and that there is a lot of genuine virtue in them and that those values are good and worth fighting for um it's just that other stuff is there too absolutely and that um sometimes structures like the family like police departments like um local government they are also um like brian said propped up by evil things both of those things are true at once yeah absolutely and uh and for that reason um, I'm going to be using a pretentious word, dialectical, Uh-oh. quite a bit. <laughs> uh, we're going to see lots of dialectical uh, and lots of liminal, but that's coming up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so yeah, um, now turning to the actual the plot, um, you know, we're not going to do a recap. Uh, and thank God, because rewatching the pilot. Lara's dead, guys. Spoiler. It's amazing how much happens yes. <laughs> in the pilot. In every episode of Twin Peaks, there's a lot of plot. It's a plot-heavy show. We're not going to sit here and, and go through... Uh, go through it step by step. So uh, I, I do want to kind of say, step back and, and look at what's happening in general. What's the big picture in the pilot? So obviously it's Laura's death, her discovery of her body. And so what we're seeing is something paradoxical about her role, the role of her death. It, it affects everyone in this small town. Yes. In a way it couldn't affect everyone in a big city mm -hmm. and so much of the pilot is spending time with characters expressing grief yeah that was what really struck me when we re-watched this episode is how much of it is just devoted to people reacting purely reacting to finding out that Lara's dead yeah um you know and for all of the heightened elements that we're going to talk about it's remarkably realistic mm -hmm. uh, and methodical um, and it, it almost painstaking at every step that it takes, you know, the body's discovered. Um, we also see the, the parents are, are uh, Sarah, the mother, um, realizing that Laura's missing, you know, and then she gets the call. Uh, ultimately, uh, Leland gets the call. Um, the news radiates outward. It gets to the school. Her Laura's friends find out. Um, you know, it's it's very methodical and realistic, um, and, and it all plays out. Um, you know, other than maybe some corny dialogue and some of the '50s styling, um, it really does play out about like you would expect it to play out in real life. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of raw naked emotions that um, really ground it in reality. And that's something people often miss about Lynch is they think about surreal elements, supernatural elements, things that are opaque or hard to understand. And we all love those things about Lynch. But I think it's always grounded in something real. Mm -hmm. And here in the pilot, it's grounded in that real experience of grief. You know, that a lot of uh, a lot of people, you know, can understand in one way or another. Yeah, I think um, obviously Sarah's grief is the most raw. And I think what's so interesting about her reaction and also in a way Donna's is how they seem to know that something has happened before it's confirmed. And yeah. that, that seems very real to me. When I was in high school, my sophomore year, there was a death of uh, another student. And um, I won't go into the details, but but this way of everyone finding out was very familiar. And also the way that we all sort of knew once you know the faculty started having grim looks on their faces and meeting together in private and um, talking in hushed tones, we knew that something terrible had happened. Right. And we also knew who in our class wasn't there that day. And um, it didn't take long for people to put it together even before it was confirmed. Yeah, and, and for me, 
I don't have an experience like that, but you know, the closest thing I can think of is uh, 9-11. Sure. Obviously not as personal, but there was still this sense at school of uh, this big thing that happened that everyone knew about. Um, and before we move on from that, I want to shout out the actor who plays the principal. Mm-hmm. Don't remember his name. He's a great character actor. Let's He's got a small part here, but he nails it. Um, and it's really hard. Troy Evans, yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff. He's like oh, right. one of those guys who's been, you know, working on TV and in movies forever. But he, yeah, he doesn't have a whole lot to do. But I think he really, he really nails it. Yeah, it brings a lot of humanity and, again, that realism mm-hmm. to uh, this role. Um, so, yeah, um, but... You know, going back to the this paradoxical role of Lori's death, obviously it affects everybody in the town in one way or another. A lot of them are express, uh, experiencing grief. Um, but one, the it's interesting that throughout the pilot we see immediately the characters move on, yeah, and start to return uh, or go back to their own personal issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me of that Robert Frost poem, Out Out. Yeah. Uh, about the kid that cuts himself on a saw. While he's and working. then everybody goes back to work. Right. Because what else are they going to do? Right. Um, yeah, that's why I think it's interesting to kind of go back to what we were talking about, about the mill. Um, Josie, um, who is sort of nominally in charge of the mill because her husband left her everything. Uh, but is in a power struggle over it with her sister-in-law. Um, she wants to shut down for the day because right. of what happened to Lara and also Ronette, whose father worked there. Um, and Catherine is aghast at this very idea of not continuing to work because you feel sad. Um, right. So I do think that like there is kind of like an impulse in some of the characters to say, okay, we're going to shut down. But most people, you're right, seem to kind of want to go back to normal. And I think what's interesting going forward is how people react to Sarah and Leland, who really can't go back to normal, obviously. And it seems like people just kind of ignore that or think they're weird or crazy or embarrassing. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And... You know, I think Catherine not wanting to shut down the mill, that's supposed to tell us something about her, that she's maybe cold and heartless. Although later we see that she's the one who uh, seems to take pity on Leland in his grief. Mm -hmm. Um, And also uh, the fact that Josie is doing this very humane thing that's setting us up to sympathize with her, which may be makes it more of a twist later on. Yeah. We find out about her uh, secret life. Um, But, you know, a a lot of the main characters move on pretty quickly to other concerns. So we've got Bobby, who um, has a very brief moment of guilt, or not (laughs) guilt, a very brief moment of grief. Yeah. Um, When he finds out Lori's dead, uh, he... Then he's immediately defensive. Well, he's immediately accused of murder. Well, uh, you know, I guess that's understandable. He has more pressing concerns. <laughs> sure. Um, he uh, he emphatically uh, says that he loved her uh, in a way that's very um, 
not very uh, <laughs> persuasive. Right, because we saw so much of the early part of the episode, he's thinking that Laura is still alive, is cheating on her. Yes, um, you know, but he's a teenager. You right. know, I, I think uh, you don't have to read that much into it. He felt like he was in love. He probably wasn't. But obviously Laura was important to him. And mm -hmm. uh, this will actually make for one of the more uh, effective moments in the return, which yeah. we'll get to eventually. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, pretty quickly he realizes what he learns by being questioned by Cooper is that Laura was cheating on him with James. Right. And now he's, his primary motivation for the pilot and for a lot of the season seems to be to getting revenge on James. So that's one way that he moves on. And then we see James and Donna um, realizing that they're in love with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the same day that they learned that Laura is dead. Yeah, it's pretty fast. It's pretty fast. Um, so yeah, so here's this another dialectical movement of Laura's death, um, pushing the characters forward in their separate stories mm -hmm. that have nothing to do with Laura and yet binding them to Laura such that she keeps returning and they can't get rid of her. Right, it's like Lara refuses to just be a MacGuffin. Like yes. she refuses to just be the thing that gets the ball in motion. She keeps coming back. Like right. later on in the series, Donna has a line where she's talking at Lara's grave and she says, they didn't bury you deep enough. And I think that's really um, a big part of the story that Lara just won't go away, either because of the horrible things that were done to her that are never really dealt with, right. or um, because people are trying to move on after their grief um, and not yeah. succeeding. Um, but yeah, they all kind of make the attempt to move on, but nobody is really successful. Right, yeah, and again, you know, looking forward to the return, Laura never stops being important. Right. Um, in fact, she almost seems to become more and more important as time goes on. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, uh, this is probably a good time to to transition and talk about the entrance of Dale Cooper. Yes. Good uh, guy, Cooper. Right. So, yeah, you know, an iconic character, um, probably the the character that people think about first when they think about Twin Peaks, mm -hmm. an iconic role by Kyle McLaughlin, mm -hmm. um, and a beloved character. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what are what are some of your feelings about, about Cooper, specifically thinking of your first impressions? Well, it's maybe it's just like the rewatch and getting older myself, but like the first thing I think when I see this pilot now is just how young he seems. Yeah. Um, it really wasn't that long after he did Blue Velvet with David Lynch when he was, you know, a very young college student or supposed to be. And um, Kyle MacLachlan was not that much older than some of the students, right. than some of the actors playing high school students. Um, so that's, that's really my first vivid impression. Um, 
What also I get from this that I think is really interesting, especially in retrospect, when you know everything that's coming and everything this character is go is going to go through, is how light a touch he has with everything and yes. how kind of unconcerned he is with people's terrible feelings. Or it's it's not that he doesn't care. It's just that he's not bogged down in any of it at all. And he doesn't really have strong feelings about what he's seeing yet. Like there are a bunch of moments in the pilot where he doesn't remember what Laura's name is. He has to like ask um, people to remind him of her name. Um, really at this point, she's just like one point in a broader case for him. Right. Whereas I think by by the end of this series, by the end of the return, especially, it's all about Laura for him. Right. Yeah. It's it can be difficult to talk about Cooper, um, because uh, when we first see him, he almost seems like a character who has achieved uh, a kind of enlightenment mm -hmm. and and is a steady our steady force in the show, and will kind of hold on to him and look to him to be our anchor. Um, but then he does have a broader, a broader story about our arc where he changes over time and that is very important in the return. Um, but as for his function here in the pilot, uh, it's a relief to see him. Yeah. It's a relief from the crushing emotional weight of grief. He's someone who, like you said, he's not directly affected by Laura. He's, there's a lightness to him. Um, so the town, it's almost presented as a place uh, where innocence has been lost and there's a wound and a trauma. We later find out the town's not so innocent, um, but its idea itself has been uh, broken and it's struggling with this darkness. Whereas Cooper, at least as he's portrayed here, it's almost more like he's married the darkness and the light and the innocence and experience. Mm -hmm. So like, he doesn't cry over a dead body. Right. Um, and uh, so he's almost hardened, especially in the pilot, he at times almost seems callous or even perversely jocular mm -hmm. in the face of brutality. Um, yet he is still a force of good. He's gone through the darkness, he's come out on the other side with this childlike innocence intact and his joy and, and the small things that allows him to, even if his hands aren't always clean as an FBI agent, uh, he could somehow be separate, a little separate from the evil and violence in the world. Yeah, he's kind of the um, perfect David Lynch character in that respect, or he, he's sort of an ideal figure for Lynch, I think, in that he does, like you said, kind of marry this light side and this dark side. Um, and accepts both as being sort of equally valid. He doesn't um, fall too hard on either one. Right, and he's the he's the character who can enact violence and then it's yes. good. Right, and that it's a very precarious position in in the world of David Lynch because I think Lynch is is very concerned with violence and um, and with, violence is always yeah. shocking in in the world of Lynch. It's mm -hmm. always I'm not sure that Lynch actually believes that violence. Uh, I don't think Lynch believes that violence is ever completely good. No, and it always has a psychic cost, right. even if people don't 
realize that it does in the moment. Right. And so I think that's something to sort of think about that as idealized as Cooper can seem at times or as um, much as the show appears to place him on a pedestal, he's not an infallible character. And I think oh, that's, really no, and I think that's something to sort of keep in mind as we go forward. Like what, what costs are he, what is he paying for and what, and how does he pay for it? Um, what costs are he incurring by the yes. things that he does? And what is he ignoring too? Because as intelligent as he seems and as much as he seems to, you know, clock people, like, I think the introduction between him and Jacoby is really interesting in that regard because he just immediately senses that Jacoby is not to be trusted. That he's yes. kind of like a crook and a smarmy guy and um, a grifter in a lot of ways. Um, there are a lot of things that Cooper doesn't notice and a lot of the ways the mystery unfolds uh, that hinges on the fact that Cooper is overlooking certain things. And that's what we have to keep in mind. All right, so uh, now why don't we uh, talk a little bit about our first impressions of some of the main characters. Sure. Uh, so one of my favorite characters has got to be Audrey. And I think she's a really interesting figure in the pilot because we spend a lot of time with her, but she doesn't really affect the plot all that much at this point. Um, but it's like the pilot is telling us, pay attention to this girl because she's going to be important going forward. And so a lot of the time we spend is just telling us who she is. Um, right. And what do we learn about her? We learn that she's sort of mischievous. Um, she's not bad exactly. We see her being kind of friendly with Donna in the hallway. We do see that she has a reaction to Laura's death. But then she pretty immediately uses that to cause trouble for her dad. <laughs> and she's really happy that she can do that. Like, I think the sort of um, most representative Audrey moment in the pilot is when she has that pencil in the cup of coffee and she just decides to see what'll happen if she pulls it out. Right. And of course she causes a huge mess. And she's delighted even though she's caused a huge mess and is, you know, bothering everyone around her. But it's like she's an agent of chaos in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, and that doesn't make her evil, but it does mean that she's unpredictable and yeah. you don't really know what she's going to do or what side she's going to be on. I think Audrey is revealed to be kind of on the side of the angels. Um, but her motivations are really murky. Right, yeah. Um, she has this curiosity, mm -hmm. and she's especially drawn to the darkness. Yeah. Um, and I think in many ways, her story in the first first two seasons, mm -hmm. um, but especially the first season, is that she is the uh, the Jeffrey Beaumont figure, the, the character. Yeah, that, that's what's so interesting. Like how McLaughlin plays in Blue Velvet. Um, who is uh, someone, yeah, who is, has a kind of coming of age story that involves um, essentially wanting to do something noble and good, mm -hmm. but also simply being drawn to evil mm -hmm. uh, from some impulse within him. 
that takes him down into uh, this hellish world um, where he's in over his head uh, and then he comes back up, um, you know, uh, maybe having learned something about himself and with order reinstated. Right. Um, in fact, I know that at one point, uh, David Lynch was selling Twin Peaks as a, as a blue velvet soap opera. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, yeah, Audrey, it, it's very much that character. And um, she's a character that has a lot in common with Dale Cooper. Yes. And I think, yeah, her crush on him and their sort of aborted love story is a big part of the first season. Um, and, you know, there are all kinds of explanations as to why that didn't go anywhere. I think it was a good choice for it not to go anywhere, um, ultimately. But I think, yeah, Audrey is drawn to Cooper for a reason that goes beyond just him being a new handsome guy in town, although he is very handsome. Um, I think she wants to be him in a lot of ways. She right. she wants to be the person who solves the mystery and figures everything out. And she sees him doing that and wants to help him and wants to, you know, solve it for him. And um, it's like she can't decide whether she wants to be the hero or be the damsel in distress. And that's part of what leads her into some of the problems she gets into later this season. Right. Um, and what about some of the other characters? Uh, what about some of the other characters? So I wanted to talk about this um, when we talked about people's reactions to Lara's death, but one of the most interesting to me is Andy's. Yeah. Um, because Andy is not, you know, a crucial character in terms of the plot in the first season, although I think he's really thematically important by the end of the return, as is Lucy. Um, but I think what's most interesting about Andy is that he's the first person to really display this kind of overwhelming grief that we yeah. talked about before. But Andy shows it before he knows who Lara is. Right. He's the only person who does that. The others, once they turn the body over and they see that, oh God, it's Lara Palmer, then they get upset. But Andy just burst into tears as soon as he sees that somebody is dead. And Sheriff Truman says to him, Andy, not again, or whatever he right. says. Like, so we know a couple things about Andy. We know that his emotions are like very close to the surface. And that this is kind of typical for Andy, this reaction to death and violence, that he is just very, very hurt by it and upset by it. And right. as much as Andy is kind of a goofy figure in the show, I think um, we're supposed to see him as, as like pure of heart, really, as, as somebody who really is all good. Um, which hardly anybody in this universe is. Yeah, and again, for Lynch, the way that a character responds to violence uh, is absolutely crucial. Mm -hmm. And that, that this is Andy's basic response. Yes. Uncontrollable, an, an uncontrollable response. Yes. You know, that prevents him from doing his duties. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, you know, even if Andy is kind of ridiculous yeah. and laughable in some ways, uh, you know, Lynch takes him seriously as someone 
with uh, an almost uh, saint-like compassion and this will be important in the return mm -hmm. where of all the characters um, Andy is is gifted yeah is seen as as deserving of a, a kind of divine revelation mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, were there any other characters that you wanted to touch on uh, before we move on? Um, Josie a little bit, um, because it's really interesting to me. I had forgotten this, but I noticed it when we rewatched this episode. She's the first character we see. Yes. And we see her looking at herself in a mirror as she puts the makeup on. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way to start the show. Um, because the way women are seen and the way they see themselves is such an important part of this story. And so putting Josie first kind of immediately places her as a foil to Laura, who's like the most important female character. Um, and once we learn more about both of them, that makes more and more sense. You know, they both have pasts doing sex work, um, they have both been sexually abused, they're both manipulated by some of the same men, um, they're both used by some of the same men, um, yes. they both have a kind of light and dark side where they can seem very loving and compassionate and sometimes but then manipulative themselves or um, harmful themselves or callous. Um, and that just makes me wish that I liked Josie more. <laughs> right. I think that, you know, Joan Chen is extremely beautiful, but I think of this cast, which is really strong for the most part, she's kind of a weak link. Absolutely. Um, yeah, one of the big missed opportunities of yeah, Twin Peaks. Because I think, yeah, that Josie is such an interestingly written character, but. Right. Wasn't it originally supposed to be Isabella Rossellini? I think so. I think so. Yeah, and then, uh, I don't know, I guess that fell through, uh, if it was ever, I don't know how far they got in casting, but um, it kind of seems like, um, you know, this the casting of the show, it's so good mm -hmm. for, for most of the characters, but this is one of those where kind of seems like they cast her based on her looks, yeah, of, uh, both her beauty, mm -hmm. because even though this is, the town of Twin Peaks has, you know, like five of the most beautiful women in the world. <laughs> uh, it's important for the plot that Josie is someone who is remarkably beautiful and mm -hmm. Cooper makes uh, a point of talking about her beauty um, early on. So it's something that he notices. Um, and I think unfortunately they also um, cast her for her race. Yeah, this to be, Josie's uh, storyline goes some pretty racist right. places. Yeah. And, and it's not all about things that she does, but it, yeah, this is not right. something they, that covers the show in glory. Right, it's like they wanted the uh, the trope of <laughs> an inscrutable Asian character yeah. to stand in for writing and performance mm -hmm. that would make the character mysterious. Yeah. You know, uh, she's supposed to be out of place in this town. And I think mm -hmm. that that's, you know, there was probably a way to do it, even making her Asian, that would work better. Um, because she is, we're supposed to think, huh, you know, she's in this small town. Yeah, everybody's white but her, right. Um, but it does seem like they are 
using her race as a crutch so that we have to make, as the audience, we have to make that, ra that kind of racialized or even racist inference of, um, oh, she seems so exotic mm. and mysterious, yeah. you know, um, and if she, if maybe we can't trust her, you know, all these things that go through your mind uh, or that, you know, the they show seem watch. to want to go through your mind, but like most of the time I'm watching Josiane, I'm like, all right. Well, a lot of times <laughs> I'm wondering what I'm supposed to feel because she's making the same face every time. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, they, I feel like they, it seems like they could have found a better, a better actor, but uh, what can or, you say? Or just directed her better. I don't know. I, I have such, such mixed feelings well, about this character because I think has written, she could be so interesting. And I don't know, there are moments where I think Joan Fenn is really effective. Um, that's true, I don't, yeah, I don't wanna to be too negative. Um, mm -hmm. Right, yeah, especially later on, I think we see more of the character's depths. And we also see that her lack of an aspect, you know, it could be read as uh, strategic yes, in many ways. right. And even studied and something uh, that's become habitual from a lifetime of of abuse. Yeah, and that's why I think she is a really interesting foil for Laura. And and to just sort of go back a little bit, that first image of her of looking at herself in the mirror, I think really cements some of the themes of the series that we'll see explored because the way that Laura in particular is turned into an object by this whole town yeah. um as somebody who's inside a frame. That's the way we see Lara through yes. so many moments is she's literally a picture in a frame, not a person. And what we learn is that she really is a lot more than that. She's not just the beauty queen in a picture frame in a glass case. Uh, she really does contain multitudes and the way Lara sees herself or saw herself is just as important as the way other people saw her. And so I think to start the show with that image is really, really important. Absolutely. And uh, something we'll definitely touch on more as we go on is the way that Lynch uh, in Twin Peaks um, and in a lot of his his uh, his movies um, often seems to be writing a fine line between misogyny and critique of misogyny. Yeah, totally. Uh, and the way that Laura is objectified, but um, we're supposed to know that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And and it is ultimately uh, a tragic story about the consequences of that objectification. Yeah. Um, now, one thing I wanted to talk about uh, is time in Twin Peaks. Hmm. And this is something that I didn't really notice until this last time that we watched the pilot, uh, which is maybe my fourth time watching the pilot. Uh, somehow it never hit me that all of the action that pilot takes place in the in one day, one day. <laughs> one day. Which is insane because yeah. so much happens, um, and including, you know, so, uh, in particular, what's kind of hard to reconcile is that um, uh, Ronette uh, is found, mm -hmm. which then triggers the FBI investigation. So they have to call Dale Cooper to come from wherever he is. Presumably, he's not doesn't have to make a 
uh, a flight because yeah. they don't have time. And they do a little a bit of retconning um, of that in Firewall with me, if I remember, because we learned oh, that they, right. they had already had their eye on this stuff. That's and, right. and so from that, we can understand that Cooper was probably already on his way out there. Right. And, and then he begins his investigation. Um, you know, he has a crucial scene with Bobby where they're watching the video. Um, and all of these things happen. And, you know, I think we tried to figure out, um, is, could this, could the, all of this realistically happen in one day? And the answer is maybe, uh, but, uh, I think it's important that in the pilot and really throughout the first season, it feels like time expands and contracts. Mm. A lot of things happen and then you later realize it's only been a day or a week. Right. Um, and you know this. It seems like the there's so much happening in Twin Peaks. It's overflowing its container, and uh, so the way that time is weird in Twin Peaks that becomes especially important in the return. But we see hints of it, I think, from the very beginning. Uh, and that bending of time it could reflect the unnatural forces that are at work in the town. Mm -hmm. Thematically, you could say it shows how violence and trauma can distort our sense of time. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, so I think that's important. Um, and then, you know, uh, one thing I want to talk about uh, with the pilot is we see the roadhouse for the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the roadhouse is such a strange place yes. in Twin Peaks because it, it really is otherworldly, kind of right from the start. Right. Um, it's, you know, Twin Peaks is a dreamlike town, but even compared to Twin Peaks, the roadhouse is dreamlike. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the, the bands that play there and the music they play isn't what you would expect in uh, what's a, supposed to be a dive bar. Yeah, and, and one that's not even like in the town. It's sort of out in the woods a little right. bit. Another one of those liminal spaces. Yeah. Um, where people from the town go out, out of the town, outside of the boundaries, mm -hmm. into the forest where the dark forces originate. Yeah. Um, and uh, and they listen to dream pop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's kind of gentle and also very emotional. Mm -hmm. You know, all these people that uh, all these uh, greasers and lumberjacks get in touch with their emotions, listening to uh, Julie Cruz. Um, so that's already strange. It's not supernatural explicitly. Right. Cause it could happen, but it's weird. And, um, another strange thing about the roadhouse is the way it seems to attract all the characters like a magnet. Mm -hmm. And throughout the series, when, when we see multiple characters diverging on the roadhouse, we know something important is going to happen. Yeah. It's like they're all drawn there. Yeah. Um, and that happens right from the bat uh, in the pilot where multiple characters converge on the roadhouse. There is a goofy brawl between jocks and greasers, mm -hmm. uh, which seems to me like a 50s throwback. Um, it's always unclear to me whether David Lynch even knows that he's doing 50s throwbacks or whether that's yeah. just sort of what he likes, so he does it. To me, it seems goofy. I'm not sure it was supposed to be uh, in the return, especially, we see that the roadhouse is a place 
where real violence happens and mm -hmm. has consequences. Yes. Um, but I do think in this scene, because the music keeps playing and it's that dreamy music, um, it's a distinctive lynching moment where you have uh, violence contrasted with the dreaminess. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the music kind of alerts us that the action is fake in a way. Or sort it's of performed. Performative. Um, and yet at the same time, the emotional content is overwhelming and raw. Yes. So the tone, you know, like in a lot of Lynchian scenes, it's kind of campy almost, but not quite. Almost ironic. Sometimes he's flirting with kitschiness. Yeah, but it's not quite either of those things. It's its own, mm -hmm. its own tone. Right. Um, and then I think the the last major thing I wanted to touch on with the pilot is there are surprisingly few supernatural elements here. Mm -hmm. In a in a show that was uh, you know eventually known for. Uh, crazy dream sequences, which aren't necessarily supernatural, but you know, also and Josie getting stuck in a dresser. Well, it gets very wild, yeah, for sure. Um, with strange things, unnatural things happening, fantastic elements. Um, but in the pilot, we're really setting a kind of baseline reality mm -hmm. that is, in many ways, very realistic. Like I said, albeit heightened with yes with some soap opera elements and corny dialogue. Yeah, it's stylized for sure. Stylized, but basically realistic. And that's our um, canvas. Even with some strange things like flickering lights, the mm -hmm. deer's head on the table in that one scene. Um, but it's a baseline and we're going to, we're going to smear that canvas and cake it with all these uh, fantastic elements. Do you think that's what it's doing, or is it peeling layers back? Do you think there's a difference? That's a good question. Um, I think that aesthetically for our experience, mm -hmm. we're starting with a baseline reality and getting more elements, but um, I think, yeah, it could be viewed the other way as well. And, you know, as we were talking about, it often feels like a surface being disrupted. Yeah, and see something underneath. I guess what I'm saying is that yes, that we get new elements, but we get them by going deeper in. Like yeah, it's actually right. pretty rare for anything weird to come to Twin Peaks. That's right. What we find is that there was something weird that was already there that we didn't know about, and sometimes, especially I think by the second season, that constrained credulity yes. a little bit, where we find. Like, how did people not notice that there was all this craziness going on in this town? But um, right. Right. yeah, mostly we just find out stuff that was already there. Yeah, I think that that's fair. Um, and then, you know, there are some, some things that we get in the pilot that I think we'll leave it to a later episode to really dig into. Um, but I did want to mention them. Um, we get shots of the fan yes. in the Palmer house. Yes. What One thing that I found in a recent book um, that I read that is really good, um, which is about women's reactions to Twin Peaks, um, but it has an interview with the woman who owns the 
um, Palmer House, and a lot of people visit, and they always want to see the fan. It's like <laughs> it's the first thing that people want to see. They want to yes. see the hallway with the fan. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot there. Yeah, uh, I definitely have some thoughts on that, um, but we'll, we'll save that because it it keeps coming back. Yeah, that is a very important hallway. Yes, and I yeah, I guess what I want to note at this point is that the fan, and also the stoplight. Mm-hmm. They are these images that are given special attention in the pilot um, to the point where it's almost like uh, rubbing in your face. Like, this is important. Right. Think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we later find out that there are, uh, they're really um, pretty uh, prosaic explanations for their significance in mm-hmm. terms of the plot. Yes. Uh, but even before we learn those explanations, they're laden with meaning just by the way that they're filmed. Um, well, yeah, and, and so I think like without sort of going into the prosaic explanations of those things, I think what they denote in sort of pure symbolic terms is boundaries. Yes. Um, the fan is in a hallway between several bedrooms. Yes. Um, a traffic light, a stoplight is obviously, it's stop, go, the one side of the street, intersection, yes. and. So much of this story yes. already, and further, when we learn more, it's about crossing boundaries. Yes. Crossing boundaries within the family that aren't supposed to be crossed. Yes. Crossing boundaries between the real world and a kind of spiritual world. Um, crossing legal boundaries. A lot of the yes. you know mechanics of the plot in the pilot is, well, Ronit Pulaski wandered across the border, and that makes this a federal case. Boundaries yes. there. So yeah. that's that's really important. The L word. Yes. Liminal. <laughs> the right. spaces between spaces. Yeah, the L word. Not, not, not the TV show, the L word. Right. Um, right. And the, the fan is also at the top of the stairs, mm-hmm. another uh, crossing between the two levels. Yes. The stoplight, um, you know, the geography of Twin Peaks is a little murky, but it mm-hmm. kind of seems like that stoplight is somewhere on the boundary between the town and the woods. Yes, um, yes. Uh, so that's important. Um, the We see the Great Northern for the first time um, with its uh, wood interiors. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk more about that later on. Um, you know, there's this great scene between James and Donna at the end. Yeah. Um, where everything that James says to Donna about what happened, mm-hmm. we see that happen in Fire Walk With Me. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing to watch it and see that Lynch was very faithful. Yes, yes. To using Fire Walk With Me to show what happened mm-hmm. and to make it fairly consistent with everything that we see in the TV show. Mm-hmm. And the final note I want to touch on is uh, actually two things. I want to talk about the deer's head just okay. because I love it. All right. It's not important, really. Yeah. But I think there's some thematic resonance there with um, the fact that it's it's a violent image. Mm-hmm. This was a deer that was killed. Yeah. And beheaded. Right. So that's this violence against natural world, mm-hmm. kind of mirroring the credits. Yeah. Uh, that's supposed to be tamed. 
It's on the periphery. It's a kind of decoration and uh, a signifier that we have tamed nature. Yeah. And yet it, here it is intruding onto the center. Mm. On the table, the site where the site of social coordination, yeah. the site where people come together to do to create society. Mm -hmm. The deer is intruding. Um, and again, that goes back to the spiritual forces, which are like loosely and problematically associated with Native American mythology. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. And then the final thing, just to tie a ribbon on this, is the I said there were no almost no supernatural elements mm -hmm. in the pilot, but we, at the very end we get one, which is our first hint that there's more than meets the eye, not even beyond the story of who killed Laura Palmer, yeah. which is Sarah Palmer's vision. Yes. She sees a hand, a mysterious hand, yes. digging up the necklace. Right, that is true, yeah. And I think even when you watch it, you don't necessarily know that it's a vision. It could no. be a weird dream, mm -hmm. or maybe her scream is un, uh, unrelated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, later on, it, it's made clear, no, she no, had a vision of a real thing that happened. Yes, yes. And we already know about the necklace and, um, yeah. Right. I guess the other things I want to mention, um, I feel like I can't let this go without just saying how good Grace Zabriskie and Ray Wise in oh, particular yeah. are. And I really think this pilot shows how the two of them plus Cheryl Lee really became the beating hearts of this story that really all of the meaty drama is to do with them. Their yeah. feelings are just so raw and real. Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, the other thing, the book that I referenced earlier, it's called Laura's Ghost, Women Speak About Twin Peaks by Courtney Stallings um, is really worth picking up. She has interviews with a lot of Twin Peaks fans, but also essays by Cheryl Lee and Grace Zabriskie talking about their characters. Um, and that's all really worth reading. All right, good stuff. So that's the pilot. Yes. I think we covered a lot of ground um, and we're excited to keep watching, keep rewatching the series mm -hmm. and giving you our thoughts. Yes. Stay sexy. <laughs> Bye. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard, and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool, but please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.